I'm Gregory Berg. Every Saturday during the month of February, we're going to be devoting the Morning Show podcast to a replay of a past conversation with Dr. Yuri Maltsev, longtime professor of economics at Carthage College, who joined the faculty there in 1991. Sadly, Dr. Maltsev passed away on January 25th at the age of 72. Over the years, I had the great privilege and pleasure of speaking with Dr. Maltsev on the morning show on more than a dozen occasions, and it was always fun and illuminating. Here is one of our conversations. And we welcome you to the Friday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. I am glad to be back after a couple of days off because of illness, and I'm glad I recovered in time to be able to welcome into our studios a faculty colleague of mine, Dr. Yuri Maltsev, professor of economics, uh, one of the mainstays of the uh, Clausen Center, and uh, someone who has been on the morning show a number of times before. Uh, the reason for this particular invitation is because uh, Dr. Maltsev reached out to me after having uh, heard a little bit of the uh, interview that I recorded with Serhi Ploki, the author of a book that I think many people are regarding as a definitive account of what happened at Chernobyl. And of course, that was that infamous nuclear accident from 1986 that in, in many ways is still the most serious nuclear uh, disaster that uh, has happened anywhere on, on the planet. And uh, it was a very, very uh, frightening incident, certainly for us in the West. And uh, needless to say, uh, just as frightening and, and more so for those who were living in closer proximity to uh, Chernobyl, Dr. Maltsev was living and working in Moscow at the time. And uh, he suggested that he would have some very interesting perspectives uh, to share about that, uh, about that incident and the way in which it helped him kind of see his homeland and his government uh, in a very, very new light. And uh, I, I decided to jump at the chance to do that. And before the hour is done, I think we will also have time to talk about some, some other matters related to the current economy and some of the announcements about tariffs and so on with Dr. Maltsev's expertise really coming in handy. But first, we'll talk about the incident of Chernobyl back in 1986. Dr. Yuri Maltsev, we welcome you back to the morning show. Oh, thank you. Great Always to nice to be with you. Great. Even even talking about something as unpleasant as uh, Chernobyl. <laughs> so first of all, let's set the stage. Uh, you were living and working in Moscow at the time. Tell us how approximately how old you were at that point and, and what it was you were doing in Moscow at the time before we even start talking about what happened at Chernobyl. Yes, I was at that time 36 years old, and I lived in Moscow, and I worked for the Academy of Science as a lead researcher of the Institute of Economics, and which was to some extent in charge of dealing with the consequences of this, of this disaster. And I would say that Chernobyl disaster is very important for us to know because not many historians realize that it was one of the last nails in the coffin of the USSR, that Chernobyl greatly accelerated the dis dissolution of that <laughs> evil empire, if we use the Reagan's, uh, Reagan's famous phrase. Uh, and Chernobyl also exposed how rotten, how corrupt was Soviet government at that time, that they didn't value human lives, they didn't value environment, they didn't value 
uh, dignity of the people. So that's the response to, of the Soviet government uh, to, to the Chernobyl disaster was appalling, even with Mr. Gorbachev being at the helm of the Soviet government. At that time, uh, Mr. Gorbachev, uh, he pretended that he didn't know anything, uh, that, the, that the bureaucrats, they, they have hidden all the information, the true information about that, um, and that until, until the 29th of April, he was in complete, um, uh, uh, in com didn't know what really happened. Uh, but it turned out now that when the, the uh, formerly secret archives surfaced, uh, it turned out that he knew everything 15 minutes after. Hmm. And why he was covering it? Because of the decisions that he made immediately after were really horrific. Hmm. The actual incident, uh, one of the things that, of course, made it really terrifying is that for those of us in the West, there was no announcement from the Soviet government at all. It was when high radiation levels were detect detected, I think, first in Sweden, that yes. there was some indication that something terrible had had happened, and most likely someplace in in the the uh, the, the, uh, the Soviet Union. But beyond that, we were just kind of left to, to to wonder. And of course, it sounds like not much more information than that, if any more, was shared with with the Soviet people. So, for instance, for you, do you remember where you were and under what circumstances you first learned about something having happened in Chernobyl? I was listening to foreign radios. And foreign radio. Foreign radios, yes, which were jammed in, in Moscow itself. But I lived outside of Moscow, so uh, I could listen to BBC, to VOA, to Voice of America, and to some others, to Deutsche Welle. And there was an announcement that in Sweden, a nuclear power station near Uppsala, uh, that's north of Stockholm, that it began to shut down because after rain was a... Uh, uh, it detected very dangerous uh, levels of radiation. And this clever nuclear power station in Sweden began to shut down, thinking that something happened with them. Mm. That so, there's a problem at that nuclear facility. At that facility. nuclear power station. They thought that there is some leak or whatever else. Uh, however, it was just a cloud, a cloud, a rainy cloud, which went all the way to the north. And and that's how I uh, later they said that that maybe it didn't happen with them because they couldn't find the source of of leak. Um, uh, then in on the twenty eighth of April uh, there was um, uh, an announcement on Soviet TV, and I have this announcement before me uh, that there has been an accident at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. One of the nuclear reactors was damaged. The effects of the accidents are being remedied. Assistance has been provided for any affected people. That's what they said. And immediately after, they had a, an hour-long hour -long propaganda program uh, about the disaster of Three Mile Island uh, uh, nuclear uh, <laughs> in the United States. And um, so the... the <laughs> Uh, and about other foreign <laughs> foreign disasters, uh, kind of pretending that there is not not big deal, but we are very much concerned. While there is a real big deal in the United States, and there was no concern, and no, and uh, nobody took care of the people. Uh, so that was wow. that's kind of how the Soviet Union how the Soviet Union worked. And Chernobyl is really uh, 
it was especially for Ukraine and Belarus, that was the defining moment for independence, for independence. As a great um, um, Belarusian writer, Svetlana Alexievich, she got a Nobel Prize in 2015 for literature, and she wrote, Chernobyl is like the war of all wars. There is nowhere to hide, not underground, not underwater, not in the air. Hmm. So you are exposed to this death threat and the government wouldn't do anything to to help you. Mm. I know that one of the most sort of withering points of con- of criticism from Serhii Ploki in his book Chernobyl <laughs> is that not only did the Soviet government not not offer much in the way of information about exactly what happened and the scope of the disaster, but also offered next to nothing in terms of information to the people that would have been helpful for their own survival and, and, and health. I mean, not, not disseminating to the public even the most basic kind of information about where you should go, what you should do, what you should avoid uh, to try to avoid the, the most serious uh, effects of this. I mean, that's like the most basic thing that a government should be expected to do. Exactly. Instead of that, they were trying to cover up uh, to cover up to the point that it was it happened the disaster on the 26th of April on the 1st of May that's a national holiday in the, of the Soviet Union they had a huge demonstration in Kiev and little kids with their parents were marching under radioactive rain and they didn't even cancel this because cancellation would be kind of conspicuous hmm. people would ask well, why so then that was amazingly enough that all Ukrainian communist leadership sent their families already after 26th of April away from Kiev. Mm. So that was, I think, then also Mr. Gorbachev, what was his response? His first response was to send the army there. So they sent almost 700,000 young soldiers, conscripts, 19 years old, with a brand new Kalashnikov machine guns, in brand new uniforms, but without brooms, without brushes, without buckets, without uh, uh, portable showers, uh, to so-called clean it. And then mm. after that, when re- they realized that they, and in some areas there, uh, 90 seconds, 91 minute and a half, would be enough to have a d- deadly already dose of radiation. Mm. And so what did they did after that when they realized what's happening? They sent all these kids back to the bases they were, and they were dying over there already, not, uh, 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 not at one place, not, not attracting the center of attention. Another, I would say, criminal act of Mr. Gorbachev was that he decided that uh, we don't have, and there was a lot of shortages, food shortages at that time, 1986 was a pretty bad year for the Soviet economy. And uh, <clears throat> he decided that we cannot just throw out the food w- in, this, in this radioactive area. So it should be distributed throughout the Soviet Union and mixed with clean food under the so-called standards, under norms. So the idea was that if, for example, you have a pretty highly radioactive meat, then you add, say, 5% of that meat to 95% of clean meat, 
and then uh, you will be kind of below the deadly standards of of radiation. And I was uh, the. I remember I was uh, um, speaking. I was sent to to lecture about perestroika to the northern part of Soviet Union to Komi Republic. Komi Republic is in the north, and over there, local uh, local leadership uh, decided to put me on television, and um, and there was um, uh, a lady who was a minister of health of this Republic of Komi, and. Um, and at that time, Mr. Gorbachev, again, to cover everything up, he declared the policy of perestroika, that means, uh, and glasness. Glasness means uh, transparency in government. Mm. So more, more information. That's why they had this call-in programs, first time in Soviet history. Uh, before that, everything would be pre-taped, and there would be no live TV mm. just uh, at all. Uh, uh, they wouldn't like to take any chances with anyone. And, um, and, and somebody called, and, and this, uh, this gentleman, he said that he works in a meatpacking plant, and they received a lot of, uh, a lot of pork from Belarus uh, with a stamp that it was made in uh, May of 1986. And, uh, and they had rush in their hands when they were dealing with that. So they, and they found a Geiger counter in the local university, and it looked like uh, the, this meat was, was uh, poisoned uh, with radiation. And, and this lady, she said, uh, she said um, but we do, not, uh, we do not distribute this meat to kindergartens, to nursing homes, to hospitals. Um, I was so, so appalled, and I said, so kids can eat it at home, not in the... Not in the school, not in the kindergarten. <laughs> and, right. uh, yeah. But she said, we don't have enough meat. So we're mixing it with a, with a, um, with a good meat. And so that's, uh, uh, that's how to deal with this. And, uh, and the moderator, uh, a nice lady, she asked me, what do I think about that? And I pointed at that lady, uh, the <laughs> minister of health, and I said, I think she's criminal and should be locked up. Mm. And upon my return back to Moscow, immediately my boss, Leonida Balkin, who was director of this Institute of Economics and later first deputy prime minister of Soviet Union, he asked me to his office and was shouting and yelling at me uh, because he got a lot of angry calls from the party leadership of Komi Republic. And uh, however, he, it was already perestroika. He wasn't threatening me with my job or whatever. He, he, the only thing he was insisting that if I'm saying something like that, I should say, that's what I think. Mm. So it's not the Institute of Economics. It's not that I am kind of implicating him into this. Uh, uh, but that really was, was criminal, I would say. Yeah. And it sounds like also he maybe wasn't even disagreeing with what you said. Yes. He just he did not want to be associated with what you were saying. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Interesting. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Dr. Yuri Maltsev, who is professor of economics at Carthage College. He was working in Moscow at the time of the Chernobyl disaster. And this is a follow-up to the interview which we aired about a week and a half ago, uh, my interview with Sergei Ploki, the author of a new book called Chernobyl that talks about that that disaster. Professor Maltsev, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is that in Mr. Plucky's book, he talks about how uh, Chernobyl was expanded in uh, the early, mid-1980s as part of a uh, uh, new effort to try to revitalize the, uh, the Soviet economy and that 
there is at least the possibility that a lot of mistakes were made, not only at Chernobyl, but in other places too, as certain building uh, programs went underway with very strict deadlines to finish things up no matter what and so on. And of course, it's really scary to think about that happening with something like a nuclear power plant. What can you tell us about that era in the Soviet Union and what was going on in terms of I think his words were kind of bringing the the military industrial complex to bear on the on sort of the standard economy of the Soviet Union to try to revitalize it. Well, <clears throat> that's the nature of socialism. Socialism, I think I uh, already uh, at, on this program I, I I kind of mentioned that I believe that it's nothing but public slavery, and you have slaves and um, and as as horrific as private slavery is. But it doesn't make the sense to kill your slaves because you would reduce your wealth if you are a slave owner. And the public slavery, slaves are not only an asset, they are liability as well. Mm-hmm. And so the value of human life was uh, almost nil. And uh, that's why under Lenin and Stalin and, and to some extent Khrushchev, um, over 43 million people were murdered uh, by, by the KGB. Uh, there are some other numbers, even 60 million, and I don't care, 43 or 60 million, both numbers are so horrific mm-hmm. that I cannot understand them. But um, but under Stalin, why was this killing necessary? Uh, to make people do what he wants, to make people, because under socialism, there's absolutely no incentives to do anything. Mm-hmm. If that's equality of results, no matter what you do, then most people don't work. And so the only way to make them work is to threaten them, to threaten them, their families, their everything. And you were also a slave of the state because the state would give you apartment, the state would regulate what you can consume, where you can go, where you can work. Um, and that all collapsed with perestroika. With perestroika, uh, what happened, Mr. Gorbachev, he removed fear out of the system which was glued together only by fear. At that time, we had a pretty funny joke uh, uh, that um, uh, that James Bond retired and and uh, uh, CIA uh, hired him as a consultant. That looks like CIA is all time uh, <laughs> hiring <laughs> British consultants and uh, and sent him to Moscow. And uh, James is walking um, uh, by the street and uh, goes to the butcher shop and writes in his little notebook, "No meat." Uh, goes to a bakery and writes there, no bread. Goes to the um, um, shoe store, writes there, no shoes. And there is a KGB officer following him, looking over his shoulder, and uh, said, a year ago, you would be shot for doing that. And James writes there, no bullets. And when, <laughs> and when people realize that there are no bullets, almost everybody stopped working. Uh, there was mm. a Soviet famous Soviet dictum that they pretend to pay us and we pretend to work. Mm. So there was no labor discipline at all. And it was very detrimental in, say, uh, nuclear power industry, for example, or in healthcare, or in other vital things, or in in civil aviation, or or in everything military. Um, So there was a lot of disasters, a lot of man-made disasters. And, for example, how Chernobyl happened. Um, at uh, 1 a.m., they decided to test, they decided to test, ironically, safety system. <laughs> and they were thinking, what will happen if we'll turn this lever to the right all the way? 
and they did, and it blew up. Mm. And they didn't know what they're doing. So this is the, <laughs> because they found some bottles of, empty bottles of vodka in the site, uh, which all these people were saying that they were, they were picked up as scapegoats and these bottles were planted, but many of them went to jail. Some mm. of them died right away because of radiation. Those who survived served 15 years, 20 years. I remember in Mr. Plucky's uh, book, one of the things he mentioned is that this test that you're talking about was originally scheduled for such and such a time, and then it got delayed, and then it got delayed. And, and as it would get delayed, then it, you would have these different crews coming aboard who had no idea what any of this was even about. And it's like nobody took responsibility to say this test should not happen now because you know, this crew from before, they knew what to do, but we don't, we're not equipped to do this or whatever. It was just kind of a passing the buck thing. And so, yes, this test ends up happening when there are not people there that know properly how to do it. Exactly. And what I remember, uh, because we had this com uh, investigative committee, uh, which went to, uh, that uh, that was also pretty bad circumstances around because one of the, of the, um, uh, thermal power station, not nuclear, was um, uh, had some problems. Had some problems, and they shut it down. And so there was a shortage of electric supplies, and that's why they they um, uh, changed the, the the time and date and everything. And they were doing this test uh, in the middle of the night when usually the the demand for electricity is is the lowest, mm. and so that's uh, that's what, what it did. But but the effect was horrific because radioactivity released was over two hundred times more than from Hiroshima or Nagasaki. Mm. Two hundred Hiroshimas. Wow. And of course, uh, it's also important in terms of where Chernobyl was located. If this accident had occurred is in a sense in the heart of of the Soviet Union uh the the harm would have been directed probably more towards the Soviet Union itself and instead because it was towards that western frontier that's why so much of the radiation actually spilled into Europe and that's why this was known otherwise who knows if we ever would have learned of what happened <laughs> Exactly, and they had this kind of catastrophes before, and in 1957 in Chelyabinsk there was a huge leakage of uh, anthrax. They had a center for biological warfare, and hundreds of people died, and and nobody knew about it. Only after the collapse of Soviet Union, this data wow. became available. A lot of leakages at the nuclear power station on Volga River and Don. Uh, then um, I think that in the United States, many people don't know that was a lot of, because of Chernobyl, there was a lot of radioactive fallout even here. In, in the United States? In the United States and Canada. Amazingly enough, on the West Coast, the states of Washington, Oregon, and British Columbia and Canada, they were affected by higher levels of radiation. Europe, in Bavaria, they had... In, for some reason, that's the, the, the way the, the, the clouds would go. Uh, in Bavaria, they had a lot of deformities. Uh, they, in Berlin itself, they had 50% increase of children born with Down syndrome. So mm. there was a lot of uh, um, 
1986, for example, in Europe, they produced over 100 million tons of milk. 20% were affected by Chernobyl. 20% were contaminated. Even today, for example, Poland, they all the time complaining that because they perceived as radioactive, because they were just next to this catastrophe, uh, then the ham, the other produce, Poland produced a lot of wonderful, very tasty agricultural products, that Europeans are avoiding them. Mm. They to would this better, day. Even to this day. They wow. would better buy something made in Holland, paying a little bit more, rather than risking themselves to, 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 to glow in the dark. Wow. Now, one of the things you mentioned is that as, as someone who worked at the, uh, I think you called it the Academy of Science, mm-hmm. that one of the things that you and your uh, colleagues were charged with is was to assess the potential damage that was mm-hmm. done by this uh, disaster at Chernobyl. Tell us more about what you and your colleagues actually did in terms of trying to determine that. What kinds of things did you look at or study? Well, Institute of Economics was um, uh, was appointed by by the Politburo, by the Central Committee of the Communist Party, as being responsible to deal with the economic consequences of um, Chernobyl, and they uh, created a crew of uh, I think six people and sent them at first to Kiev. Um, uh, I was invited to be part of the crew. But I, to tell the truth, I don't like to be radioactive. <laughs> and <laughs> so I pretended that I have a lot of some very urgent uh, stuff to do. And, uh, and, and what, what these friends of mine who returned back, they told me it was absolutely unbelievable. Uh, for example, uh, they made a point that, uh, that a lot of peasants um, working on their little private plots given to them by the government uh, that they would produce fresh produce and try to sell them on the fresh, uh, fresh markets, on the, f- um, on, the, on the farmers' markets, which were allowed at that time in the Soviet Union. And, um, uh, and the idea of, of my fellow economists was that the government should buy everything with a market price and then destroy this fresh produce. Instead of that, what they did, they sent KGB agents and police uh, in civilian clothes with the Geiger counters, and they were pretending that they figure out which produce is contaminated and which is not, which is clean. And they were giving certificate of cleanliness. If you don't have the certificate of cleanliness, then uh, your booth or your stand would be removed from the market, and you would be fined, and you can't even go to, to, to jail. And what, uh, what they saw is that a couple of KGB officers, they put these Geigers in, into uh, radishes and green onions uh, of an old lady, and, and they saw how she handed them 25 rubles bill. And so they immediately called the uniformed police officer uh, to, to, um, uh, to investigate this matter. And, um, and these KGB people, they said, well, look, I mean, this is clean. And they put this Geiger in the presence of, of my colleagues into this produce, and it was really clean. So what was going on was just extortion of mass proportion. Clean or not clean, you pay. Mm-hmm. Clean or not clean, uh, they didn't care. 
Right. They so will in other sell words, this for unclean stuff. They will sell the certificates as well. Right. So, so for instance, then, so here's this peasant woman with clean uh, produce. Yes. And she deserved to just be given a certificate because her produce was clean, and instead she had to pay. Because she didn't know. Right. What does she know about Geiger's uh, counter or how to read it? So that was the, uh, and even they pretended that it is not clean. You see what I mean? Mm. So can you imagine what kind of corruption of the mind was that you can sell poison if you pay? Mm. It was the same thing um, approximately at that time. There were a couple of Chechen so-called black widows. They blew up two um, uh, Russian airliners. Uh, how did they go through security with all these bombs? They gave uh, bribes, $30 each, hmm. $30 each. And they blew up between them two hundred sixty people. So that was uh, several people for a buck. Hmm. You said towards the beginning of our conversation that this Chernobyl disaster, in a sense, was the beginning of the end for the Soviet Union, for the Soviet government. Uh, are you saying that the Soviet people began to see their own government with new eyes? And if so, how did they become aware of this? Well, <clears throat> uh, the background of this Chernobyl disaster was the war in Afghanistan also. It was a war in Afghanistan, which Soviet government uh, handled in the most unbelievably awful way. Uh, what does this mean? That means that uh, that the uh, the body bags coming from Afghanistan would be shipped in the evening and night, and buried at middle of the night, and nobody should, and and there will be nothing on the tomb indicating that this is a war casualty. Mm. And I remember in 1982, I think. I was watching with some friends the war in Falkland Islands between the United Kingdom and Argentina, and uh, they showed the military uh, funerals in the UK, and, uh, and and the Queen was there, and the Prime Minister Thatcher, and and, uh, and everybody else. Uh, while in the Soviet Union, it was uh, the the heroes of this war as unjust this war was, uh, they were just hushed, hushed away. They were just uh, completely mm. ignored. Can you imagine how difficult, how hard it was on their families? Mm. So that's that was the beginning of kind of the seeds of discontent then, yes, that kind of, of treatment. Mm -hmm. How about for you personally? In what way did your own personal understanding of your own government change uh, because of Chernobyl and the way Chernobyl was handled. What was most disturbing to you and what way did your own understanding of the Soviet system begin to really change? I, between us, Greg, I never had any kind of, uh, um, never trusted them because my, my grandfather was murdered by Stalin in 1938. So since then, and my father's life was ruined because he was the son of the enemy of the people. Uh, so in my family, we knew what's happening around from day one. Um, with Gorbachev, at first, I was very enthusiastic, and that's why I joined uh, this economic reforms um, uh, crowd when I was invited. 
because I thought that this is a last chance for the country. But then, after the first meeting already with Mr. Gorbachev, uh, the first meeting was, it was pretty funny, but it was, uh, it was uh, so disappointing. Mr. Gorbachev, he said, uh, uh, comrades, this is erroneous to think that central planning does not work. Central planning works. The problem, however, is that we never had a good plan. And then when you hear something like that, then you really think, what is going on behind this birthmark? <laughs> so this was uh, well, well, some, some other time. Well, the funniest thing I heard from him was that we had um, Abel Aganbegian was there the economic advisor. Uh, we called him the biggest economist in the world. He was about 500 pounds. And he, <laughs> and he, at one of those meetings, he said, I think we need to build a Swedish models. And Gorbachev said, Abel, where you would get the Swedes? And that's exactly what, what it was. So it yeah. was not serious. The, the reforms were ill-designed, Ill, Ill misimplemented. Um, in Soviet government was so corrupt that almost any even good reforms uh, would be would be uh, corrupted would be mm. uh, uh, would be misimplemented so it's a so it would be mischaracterization to say that you were under any illusions whatsoever no, no, about the Soviet no, government no. Uh, but Chernobyl was that like for you like kind of the last straw in a sense it was it was and many people made a lot of jokes about this. And the jokes were like, now we know why a Russian eagle is double-headed, for example. Mm -hmm. And Well, it was double-headed since Ivan the Terrible, since 15th century, but uh, there were a lot of uh, uh, fake ads, for example, that I'm exchanging a nice apartment in the, in the downtown Kiev for a little bottle of vodka or whatever mm. else. Uh, so that's the people were trying to make fun out of this disaster. But... Uh, it again showed how little they cared about the people. Right. That's, of course, one of the most terrible legacies of, of, of this whole story. Uh, again, we want to remind people about this remarkable book that has just been published called Chernobyl. And uh, Plokhy is the, the last name of the author, P-L-O-K-H-Y. And uh, it really is a thoroughly researched book that is uh, really quite fascinating. Funny that Plokhy in Ukrainian means bad. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. well, but he is not bad. He's right. very good, uh, very good yeah, scientist. Mr. Right. Mr. Plucky has written a very good book, even if his name means bad. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. We're speaking with Dr. Yuri Maltsev, professor of economics at Carthage College. In the few minutes that remain to us, uh, I wonder if uh, you could offer your perspective. I'm really anxious to hear your perspective on, on this matter that has been uh, garnering such news headlines lately about tariffs and mm -hmm. about uh, some of the tariffs that uh, President Trump has moved to impose upon, uh, for instance, uh, Canada and Mexico and, uh, and uh, the European Union, and of course, much to their consternation, and it's uh, brought up the, the, the specter of perhaps trade wars, uh, 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 that 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 is kind of a, a, a scary thought. First of all, j just explain what the function of tariffs typically is, and then let's talk about uh, what President Trump is doing with these these new new tariffs or old tariffs or whatever they are. Mm -hmm. Well, tariff is a tax on good. It's not tax. Uh, they they pretend it's tax on good, but tax on good means it's tax on you, tax on people mm -hmm. who are buying this good. Uh, so why do they tax it? Because uh, 
the goods coming, say, from China, usually are very inexpensive. And then if you slap a tariff on these goods, then you're creating comparative disadvantage of them uh, comparing to, to, say, local produce, to United States producers. Uh, the good example would be that the previous president, Mr. Obama, he slapped 25% um, also tariff on Chinese tires, on Chinese tires, uh, because that's a consumer good. That's why it's more interesting than, than steel or aluminum. Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> and what happened? Well, about 5,000 people lost their jobs. That's one thing. Another thing, we lost consumer surplus for about one to one and a half billion dollars. So that means people became poorer by this amount. Um, and also, um, what kind of people? Definitely, who is driving on Chinese tires? They're like $20, $25 in Walmart. Uh, definitely uh, uh, not people who are driving Rolls Royces or Bentleys or Mercedes says, yeah, so that. So these are cheap tires, probably cheap not tires. great, not well no, made. Not, yeah. may, maybe not, not great quality. But uh, the previous president before Mr. Obama, uh, Mr. Bush, uh, George W. Bush, he slapped uh, the same steel with 30% tariff. And I don't remember any outcry about that. Do you? I don't. I don't remember. Uh, Moreover, even tires, um, there was a little kind of announcements about that. But no, there was no, no public outcry, no? Not, not that this is, this is awful. What Mr. Trump is doing, I am a free market economist. I, I think that the freer the trade is, the less tariffs, the less, because, um, because what tariffs are doing, they're limiting your choice. That means your freedom to choose. Hmm. That you would not buy something which is artificially expensive artificially just to prevent you from buying it. So mm. this is, uh, uh, this from that perspective, I, I'm against all tariffs. And uh, from another hand, I can see his point, it's a political point. Every U.S. president since, since Herbert Hoover, since Herbert Hoover, were slapping tariffs on whomever else. Hoover came up with 60% tariffs on everything. Wow. It was, yeah, Smoot-Holly Act of 1932. Uh, so that almost uh, ruined international trade and commerce at that time. And uh, um, I think only Harry Truman, he didn't need tariffs because everybody, all the, our competitors were destroyed by the war. Uh, but already mm -hmm. starting with Eisenhower, uh, Kennedy, Johnson, everybody did that. What Mr. Trump is trying to do, I think, he was trying to please his constituency. Because if his constituency are this, uh, the, the blue-collar workers, uh, we have the most comp competition is in, in, in uh, manufacturing, as well as in agriculture, by the way. And, and listening to, say, Mr. Trudeau, I would say that he is uh, hypocritical in many cases. Because we, we live in the state of Wisconsin, which is a dairy, dairy farm of the United States, and, uh, and they have 300% of de facto tariffs on our dairy products. If you go to Canada, you would see milk, um, eggs, uh, cheese. Everything is two, three, four times more expensive than what it is here. So if they will open up, then a lot of Canadian farmers will go out of business because they don't have comparative advantage to have dairy farming in this cold weather they have. Mm. 
But to keep them, to keep them afloat, and to keep them voting for politicians, they have these restrictions on. That's why I think our governor Walker he raised these issues as well. So what Mr. Trump is doing is uh, he is threatening them, according to his book, The Art of the Deal, and, <laughs> and then and he thinks that they will uh, kind of balk on this and 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 do what he wants them to do. He expects them to capitulate. In yes, other words. that's right. And I think that they they will. For what reason? Because uh, because our economy is the biggest economy in the world. You cannot ignore or isolate United States because you will be shooting yourself in the foot. We have, for example, 67% of the world automobile market. So if you are selling automobiles, you should be here, and mm. all of them are. Mm. We have uh, an, an enormous uh, buying potential. Uh, our, our economy is... Um, peoples-wise, we have 328 million people. In Europe, they have 570 million people. But our economy is bigger than Europe. So that means we live richer. And we, uh, so our economy is, is a magnet for everybody. And today, I think what the G7 meeting is in, in, in Canada, and, and Mr. Trump will, 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 go, will go there, it kind of is... A, uh, uh, his uh, foreign policy is, uh, uh, I think it's entertaining at least. Yeah. <laughs> I really like his, uh, his quip, his tweet about uh, Kim Jong-un. I don't know if you heard it. I'm not uh, sure. Yeah, <laughs> it's one of his first tweets about him is that he calls me old, but I don't call him fat or stupid because I want to be his friend. Wow. This is, <laughs> That's pretty tricky. It is, yes, it is a, kind of, you can see that he had a TV background. Right. Yes, that's for sure. Um, he has had withering criticism of, for instance, NAFTA. Can you help us understand what is at the heart of his, and of course, he's not alone in that dissatisfaction, but he's been very, very vocal ab about that. What is his? What is at the heart of his criticism of, for instance, NAFTA? Well, NAFTA is also, it's not a free trade agreement as many people think. NAFTA, when it was signed even, it had 18 volumes. If you have a free trade, you, you just write free trade from now on. <laughs> 18 volumes, uh, which would be characterizing the size of hogs and and the, with the, how many worms can be found in a batch of avocados, and everything like that. Mm. So it is not a free trade agreement from the very beginning. And because of NAFTA, he believes that we have an ongoing trade deficit with Mexico and Canada, which we didn't have before, before NAFTA. Uh, because there's a system of preferences, because Mexico is considered to be a, a poor country that should be helped, and um, and that's why we have uh, almost subsidies for for them to 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 move their products here. Uh, from another hand, um, uh, our labor unions didn't like uh, Mexican participation as well. So so um, Trump and AFL-CIO are on the same side today because of they think undue competition from cheap labor, uh, non-unionized in many cases, mm. labor in Mexico. So that's the, the case. Uh, from my perspective, I think that, that we, are, we have a stake in the prosperous, in prosperous, wealthy, and stable Mexico. And so I think that it's in our interest to, 
to, I wouldn't say help them, but at least not to, uh, not to interrupt nice flow of, of goods and, uh, and capital between these two countries. However, with NAFTA, it's very interesting. For example, we have Johnson Wax. Johnson Wax, that's the company that I've seen, uh, they built a plant near Cronavaca, Mexico, um, before NAFTA. Because with no NAFTA, you built in, it's already Mexican plant, so you don't pay any tariffs. When tariffs were removed, they shut down the plant. Hmm. Because it's cheaper to make them here in Racine, Wisconsin, and ship the same deodorant to Mexico uh, because it's more reliable, the, you know, electric blackouts, uh, the, the labor forces is, is more skilled. And, uh, so this are, this are very tricky things, yes. I would say that I definitely think that, that, uh, that the ideas of fair trade, they're not very good ideas because if you remember Robert Peel, the British prime minister, who removed all tariffs, no matter, and his point was that it doesn't matter. If they want to put tariffs, somebody is against us. They're shooting themselves in the foot. And that's how England, and it was 1846, uh, that's how England became um, a workshop of the world. Hmm. Uh, that's how it became a powerhouse. So the, the free trade with no condition, because many people are trying to attach human rights to free trade or environmental issues. That's what NAFTA is all about. Hmm. And so that's the, this other kind of... The and that's policy. why we have 18 volumes <laughs> rather <laughs> right. than just one piece of paper that says free trade. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, on that note, uh, we have to draw this to a co- close, but uh, as, as I knew uh, it would be, this has been yet another uh, fascinating conversation. I so appreciate you uh, making time in your schedule to uh, uh, join me today on the morning show, and uh, I look forward to your next visit uh, sometime in the very near future. Oh, thank you very much. Dr. Yuri Maltsev, uh, professor of economics at Carthage College, joining me today on the morning show.